Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayhold Voles LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Glayhold Bowles's Building Insight podcast. My name is Catherine Thornton, and I'm an associate at Glayhold Bowles, and I'm joined by Brendan Bowles and Derek Dodgson. Today, we're going to be discussing a number of cases on good faith, and we're going to be having a discussion about their implications. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. Good to be here today with both you and Derek to talk about this, and particularly these recent uh, Supreme Court of Canada decisions, which are of such general interest and also of specific interest to those of us who practice construction law for reasons that we'll, we'll be discussing. Yeah, thanks, Catherine. Excited to be here. Great. So as I mentioned, we're going to be discussing some recent good faith cases. And just to kick off our discussion, I'll briefly discuss Basin and Renew. This was a landmark decision in 2014 by the Supreme Court of Canada, and it established that good faith contractual performance is a general organizing principle of the common law. This organizing principle of good faith has manifested in a duty, which is the common law duty that applies to all contracts to act honestly in the performance of contractual obligations. So to put it simply, don't lie to each other when you complete your contractual obligations. Yeah, so thank you, Catherine. That was a good summary. And the Basin decision, I think, is interesting for a few reasons. One, just sort of superficially, just to kind of start our, our discussion here, is how important has this decision been to Canadian law? I would say very important. Just a, a completely unscientific survey I did. I, I looked at Canley, which is, is more or less a good database of reported legal decisions in Canada. And it's been cited by almost a thousand other cases at this point in time. So if you think from November of 2014, when it was first released, it would have taken some time to, to pick up some steam. But in the last five or six years and thereabouts, we've had almost a thousand cases coast to coast where Basin has been considered in some fashion. And if you think about it, in our civil system, most cases settle, oftentimes without any kind of court decision, even on an interlocutory motion. And a lot of matters, particularly in our world of construction, are arbitrated. So it's it's amazing that it's had that much uptake, I think. So it, it tells you right there that I think it's a hot topic. I've always liked to joke about this decision that it's not as though it was the case prior to 2014 that we were allowed to lie to each other in the performance of our contracts in Canada. You know, I think if you could time travel back to 2013, I don't think I would have been telling a client, oh, yeah, you can lie. No problem at all. Nothing to worry about. But what the decision I did do, which I think is of fundamental importance, is that it codified that and brought some structure to how Canadian courts analyzed that problem and gave them with the concept of good faith as a tool. In fact, it brings some predictability and certainty, actually, to that area of law. In other words, we have this concept of good faith now as an organizing principle of common law, not just something that's out there that may or may not be applied in certain circumstances. And in that case, the significance was that it meant that they could not misrepresent their position or lie to their contracting partner. They had to respect their contracting partner's legitimate 
contractual interests and treat them with honesty and truthfulness. So funny, you know, it's not as though prior to 2014 that Canadian law was perfectly okay with lying in performing your contracts. But that case, I think, brought some organization to how courts look at these problems now. And what's really interesting, I think one of the things that's probably driving so much of the case law now is how do courts then expand upon that duty, if at all, beyond just the concept of honesty and truthfulness? Does good faith mean more than that? And I think arguably the two decisions that the Supreme Court has come out with in the last six months speak to that issue. To what extent is that duty of good faith expanded beyond just mere honesty? So that's my intro to the topic, at least. Thanks, Brendan. I think that summarizes the state of the law after Basine very well, and it leads well into these two cases which were heard in late 2019 by the Supreme Court of Canada, and decisions came out in December of 2020 and February of 2021, and that's first, Callow and Zollinger, second, Waste Tech and Greater Vancouver Sewerage. Turning to the first case, Callow and Zollinger, This case concerns the maintenance contract for a group of condominiums in Ottawa, and those condominium corporations, collectively referred to as Baycrest, entered into an agreement with a contractor called Callow, first to conduct two years of winter maintenance starting in 2010, and that was in 2012 renewed for another two years, and also at the same time, Callow was retained to do summer maintenance on the the same group of condominium corporations. The contracts each you know, had a series of terms, but the one that was most critical in the case was Clause 9 of the Winter Maintenance Agreement. And basically that functioned as a termination for convenience clause for Baycrest. It allowed them to unilaterally terminate the contract on just 10 days notice in writing. So in the winter of 2012 and 2013, Callow performed the Winter Maintenance Agreement, and there were some issues that arose concerning his performance, but ultimately, as found by the trial court, they were resolved and dealt with by Callow to the satisfaction of Baycrest and its stakeholders. So these were typical minor complaints, and the court found that Callow attended to them? Yes. However, in the spring of 2013, Baycrest and its joint use committee hired a new property manager named Tammy Zollinger, And Ms. Zollinger immediately advised the Joint Use Committee to terminate the winter maintenance agreement, and the Joint Use Committee did in fact vote that way in either March or April of 2013. So the key aspect of the case was that Baycrest didn't immediately inform Callow of its decision to terminate. So this is now in spring 2013. A decision has been made not to proceed with Callow for the following winter of 2013-2014. But at the same time, Baycrest wanted Callow to continue working on its summer maintenance agreement. And in fact, Callow did, and Callow performed the summer agreement, including some extra work referred to above and beyond or freebie work, improving some gardens at the properties. And this was noted by the Baycrest board members, but ultimately Baycrest didn't disclose their decision to terminate until September of 2013, when they formally exercised their Clause 9 rights. So, In quick summary, the trial court found that the exercise of the notice of termination was done in a breach of contract under a breach of the duty of honest performance. The trial court found that the evidence of the Baycrest witnesses was unreliable or exaggerated, 
They found that Callow was credible. The trial court judge, Justice Abonswin, considered the specific conclusion in Basin that the duty of honest performance did not include a freestanding duty to disclose, but did draw a distinction for what she referred to as active deception by Baycrest, and found that Baycrest did not meet a minimum standard of honesty. And that decision was overturned by the Ontario Court of Appeal panel of Justices Lowers, Huss, Groft, and Trotter. And the Court of Appeal, in contrast, found that Basin was a modest incremental step that there was no unilateral duty to disclose information relevant to termination, and that ultimately Callow admitted that Clause 9 was complied with in the sense that the 10 days notice to terminate was provided. So at the Supreme Court, the majority overturned the decision of the Court of Appeal and reinstated the decision of the trial court. The key quote from Justice Casale's majority decision was, in determining whether dishonesty is connected to a given contract, the relevant question is generally whether a right under that contract was exercised or an obligation under that contract was performed dishonestly. And the trial court judge, Justice Abonswin, did find that the exercise of termination was performed dishonestly. And that's ultimately what led to the decision of the Supreme Court majority. There is reliance by the Supreme Court on the trial court's finding of active deception and that Baycrest knowingly misled Callow in the manner in which it exercised its Clause 9 termination rights. And that is what amounts to a breach of contract. It's not that Baycrest wasn't entitled to end the contract as it did, but rather Baycrest's exercise of termination dishonestly was itself the breach of contract entitling Callow to damages. And there was some disagreement between members of the court as to the correct measure of damages. The majority found expectation damages typical for a breach of contract case, while a concurring opinion authored by Justice Brown found that reliance damages was the proper measure. And there was a dissent by Justice Cote, who ultimately found that silence cannot be considered dishonest within the meaning of the scene unless there is a positive obligation to speak. And according to Justice Cote, there was no positive obligation in this case. But the rest of the court found that there was an obligation given that either Baycrest had materially contributed to Callow's misapprehension or knowingly allowed it to continue. And ultimately, that wasn't permissible, as the Supreme Court says, under the organizing principle of good faith and the duty of honest performance. Okay, thank you for that very interesting summary of the case, Derek. And I'm glad you took some time to go through the trial judge's exercise of fact-finding because I think for our listeners, anyone who's read this case or heard someone else talk about it or read about it, it's really important to bear that in mind. Was what did the trial judge actually find in the Callow case? Because I think it helps you understand the outcome and explains, I guess, at least why a majority of the Supreme Court of Canada ultimately found that the trial judge's decision had been correct, first instance here. Although there was, as Derek noted, a a vigorous dissent. And I think that indicates that this is likely to be a subject of some controversy in our law going forward as we see future cases. But to get back to the facts then, and anytime you go to court, whether it's a motion or a trial, that presentation of the facts, the judge's Finding of facts and how they react to the witnesses is so important. I think just, you know, again, not to get too off on a tangent here, but think about what Derek said about the finding that the witnesses from the condominium corporation were were not credible, that they were evasive. And she obviously preferred the evidence of Mr. Callow on the stand. That's a very human factor. And it's a very important part of our system, essentially, 
all of these legal issues, they could really be understood based on the facts as found by that trial judge. So, so had this trial judge found that the condominium corporation witnesses had conducted themselves honestly in their dealings, I really wonder if the outcome here would have been the same. I think the fact that she found active deception, and I, that was, again, I thought that was a very interesting turn of phrase, Derek, active deception. I think as soon as you have active deception in a obscene world, you've got a major problem as the defendant. I think the court is highly likely to find that active deception is completely inconsistent with your duty of good faith. And they were sunk at that point, I think, as a practical matter. Now, having said that, it is an interesting case because I have to confess, you know, wearing my counsel's hat here, advising a client before this decision came out, if someone had told me sort of superficially, look, you've got a termination provision contract, you have to give notice at least 10 days in advance. If a party makes a decision to terminate, but then communicates it in accordance with that timeline under the contract, do they have a problem? I have to say, I think at least on a surface level, I would have said no. I don't think I would have been of the mindset that the defendant in this case would have had some positive obligation to say to the plaintiff, oh, by the way, just so you know, we've already decided that we're not going to renew your contract. So we just wanted to get that out there. I, I think my advice would have been you don't have to communicate that until you're required to by the contract. But here's now where this is going to become very important for all of us and people dealing with these contractual situations, the lawyers that are advising them. What do you do in a circumstance like this? Well, you certainly don't do what appears to have happened in this case, which was acted in a way that was consistent with an act of deception. In other words, disregarded your contracting partner's legitimate expectations that they would be considered in good faith to have a chance to renew the contract to continue to be able to do work. And I think that's what was bugging the trial judge here, the freebies, I think, as Derek put it. I think that's actually mentioned in the case too, the expression freebie. He was giving freebie work to impress them and to have a chance to be able to continue with the contract. And, you know, it's where it's where you get into these lines of discretion here. It can be interesting. For some people, maybe that wouldn't have been so bothersome. But for this judge, I think it, it clearly was. And so I think the case should be understood in, in that context. The, the, the fact finding of active deception was really what ultimately put defendants here offside with the Basine Doctrine and created the problem for them. I think there's going to be other cases where the court is not going to be prepared to impose extra obligations of disclosure or, you know, to require you to disclose a decision before you have to under a contract. But you're going to have to be very careful that you're not straying over this line that the Callow case has now established where that non-disclosure would, in effect, amount to uh, active deception. That did seem to ultimately bother not only the trial judge, but a majority of the Supreme Court of Canada as well. And that, that can be a little tricky because a lot more sort of common sense and good judgment comes into that, I think, than just reading the, the four corners of the written contract. And for some people, that can be a, a less comfortable place to be. But I think that's where we are right now with the Callow decision. So it's interesting. I think three years ago, if someone had given me that hypothetical problem, I may not have seen it as an issue. Do you have to disclose? Now, maybe you do. 
But certainly you cannot conduct yourself in a way that would amount to an act of deception of the other party. That was the key fact here. And so, you know, in our world, I think there's definite significance to that in that Termination provisions in construction contracts are very common. In most construction contracts, we'll think about, okay, you know, obviously we all want this relationship to work and the project to get to the successful completion with the parties continuing to work together, but there may be circumstances where the agreement has to be terminated. I know in construction disputes, often a disputed termination is the fuel that really powers a case through to a either a trial hearing or an arbitration hearing. It's a very frequently litigated issue. And so I think for those of us in construction law, we should think of Callow in that context. For example, let's say you've got a project where the owner has decided, you know, this general contractor is continuously behind schedule. They have people not showing up to site on a regular basis. They're putting in all these additional claims for extra that we think are properly part of the scope. They're nasty, they're abusive, Uh, we're getting all these terrible emails from them, we just can't handle these people anymore, we want to get rid of them. You know, there's lots of reported construction cases that are more or less those facts. So they make a decision, we want to terminate, but on the other hand, maybe the project is at a very critical schedule. For example, in just two or three more months, we're going to have this building enclosed. Do we really want to pull the plug now, or are we better off to get them as painful as it may be to that certain stage of completion and then terminate. A bit analogous, right, to the facts of the Callow case. So do you have some sort of duty to disclose that you've decided to terminate? Probably not. But then how do you act in a way so that you're not misleading, actively deceiving the contractor as to whether or not you intend to see that project through to completion? I, I could see that being a very disputed issue. And again, This can be frustrating for clients, of course, because it's a bit of a a cop-out for lawyers. Every case depends on its facts, but it's true. It's going to be very important what's contained in those emails and those minutes of site meeting and all those documents that are generated. And and certainly, I guess I could say this, you certainly wouldn't want to be in a position, if you're the owner intending to terminate, for example, where you could be accused of having actively deceived the contractor. So that's one instance. I think we could probably think of others. But that's one instance I, I could see where this Callow decision could be of extreme relevance to a, a construction dispute. And so, Catherine, do you want to then tell us a little bit about the other recent Supreme Court of Canada decision, which is the Wastec case? Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Brendan, for that introduction and for your insights on the Callow case. Um, so the Supreme Court of Canada released their decision in Wastec Services Limited and Greater Vancouver sewerage and drainage district in February of this year. And just for ease, I'm going to refer to the parties as Wastec and the city, respectively. So Wastec had a contract with the city to move waste from the city to one of three disposal sites. The contract between Wastec and the city was a long-term one. It was actually established in the 90s. And Wastec's profits depended on where they brought the waste to. So each of the three sites that I mentioned had a different rate of payment to Wastec. The contract gave the city absolute discretion to allocate waste between those three sites. And the contract did not guarantee any certain profits to Wastec, but there was a target 
of 11% profit. In 2011, about 15 years after the establishment of the contract, the city decided to reallocate the distribution of waste between those three sites. And this ended up resulting in less profit to Waste Tech. And actually, Waste Tech earned much less profit than its target. So, Waste Tech then said that the city breached its contract by allocating waste in a way that deprived Waste Tech of even the chance of achieving its profit target. The parties ended up going to arbitration. And the arbitrator found that the duty of good faith did apply. The city had breached that duty and Wastec was entitled to damages. The city appealed and the Supreme Court of British Columbia set aside the arbitrator's decision, disagreed with it, and decided that imposing a duty to have this regard to the other person's interests should be based on the contract itself. And this contract the parties actually rejected a clause that limited the city's discretion. So this obviously came before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court really had to decide what constraints the duty to exercise contractual discretion in good faith actually imposed on the parties. The Supreme Court ultimately said that the city did not breach its duty of good faith in this case. And because of that, there was no damages owed to waste tech. Through this decision, the Supreme Court gave some really helpful guidance on the duty of good faith and the role of discretion. So when a party exercises discretion pursuant to a contract, they have to do it reasonably. The duty to exercise contractual discretion in good faith requires the party to exercise that discretion in a way that is consistent with the purpose for which the discretion was given to that party. When that happens, the parties are complying with the bargain that they made. The duty is breached only when the discretion is exercised unreasonably or in a way that is not connected to the underlying purpose of the discretion. So courts shouldn't be asking if the parties exercised discretion in a moral way or in a savvy way or in a smart way, they should really be asking if the party exercised their discretion that they're allowed in the contract in accordance with the purpose for which that discretion was given. Now, this duty applies to all contracts, no matter what the intentions of the parties were or no matter what the language of the contract said. Now, touching on what Brendan mentioned earlier, it is very fact specific. Most of all, it's going to matter what the contract says. The court, after looking at the contract, they might look to the relationship between the two parties and what the contract was actually doing between those two parties. The fact that a party might lose some or even all of its benefit under the contract, such as profit, for example, which is what happened here, that's not determinative of the issue. Although it could be relevant, the court said, to show that the discretion was exercised in a way that was unconnected to its underlying purpose. So ultimately, the court found that the city's decision was reasonable, given the purpose of their discretion under the contract. The purpose of the city's discretion to reallocate the waste 
was to give the city flexibility to maximize efficiency and minimize cost. Keep in mind that the city had absolute discretion in this respect, and there were no guaranteed profits to WasteTech. And the court also said that WasteTech is basically seeking a benefit that was not included in the contract. They're asking for a benefit that they didn't bargain for, essentially. The court also noted that there is no fiduciary relationship between the parties and any loyalty that the city was required to follow was to the bargain and not to WasteTech's interests. So, Brendan, having read this case, what implications do you see for the construction industry? No, thanks, Catherine. I have a lot of thoughts on this case, and I'll do my best to sort of get them out in a relatively concise fashion and not gas on too long, because I'd also like to hear what both you and, and Derek have to say about it as well. Having said that, I'll start by observing that I think people should read this case or be aware of it for a couple of very important reasons. One is it's a very important decision on the uh, standard of review, an arbitrator's decision on appeal, which uh, is outside the scope of our podcast. I suspect we're going to do another one on that issue, and it certainly justifies its own discussion. But the case should be read for that as well. Very important decision on that. And again, we do a lot of arbitration work in our firm, and it's a common dispute resolution mechanism for construction contracts. So definitely something to be aware of. This case is a good companion case to the the other one that we've talked about, Callow, and another good example of how far the courts are prepared to go and where they're not prepared to go post-Bassin. So I think with Callow, I said in some ways, if you accept the judge's findings of fact, it was not a surprising decision that active deception, which would be dishonesty, equals bad faith, equals judgment in favor of the plaintiff. What I thought was really interesting about the Waste Tech case was that although you had different opinions from different judges on the issues and they didn't exactly get to the same result in the same way, they ultimately all got to the same result. So what that meant is you had the arbitrator's decision which found that the Wastex expectation of the profit, that contractual interest had been disregarded by Vancouver in bad faith and an award was made. But at each level of court, the judges up to and including the Supreme Court of Canada were not prepared to go that far. They were not prepared to find that the owner in this case had acted uh, in bad faith or in a matter inconsistent with their duties of good faith, put it another way. And that included all the judges of the Supreme Court of Canada. As I said, notwithstanding if they got there through a different route, they all at least agreed on the result. Having said that, (laughs) of course, The point of disagreement is in itself an interesting one. The, I think, main takeaway here is to what extent will the courts be prepared to find that an exercise of a discretionary power under a contract has been done in bad faith? And that is going to be, based on the majority reasoning of this case, I think, a significant issue for construction contract disputes going forward because construction contracts are replete with instances where a party will be conferred a discretionary power, for example, whether or not to require extra work, whether or not certain work is to be directed and considered extra to the contract, 
what to do in the instances of delay, whether to require someone to engage in an additional submission, additional layer of of work before proceeding further with the the contract. You can you can imagine all sorts of instances where somebody under a construction contract has a discretionary power. It's it's up to them whether or not to decide whether the work will proceed in a certain fashion and have they done so in good faith, consistent with the Supreme Court of Canada has now laid out in this this Wastec case. So, you know, to just to go back to the facts of Wastec for a second, I think you're absolutely bang on, Catherine, in that in that case, particularly where the parties had put their minds to whether or not to give Wastec a certain guaranteed level of profit and had rejected it, it was not inconsistent with the purposes of the contract to allow the owner to exercise their discretion in the way they did in order to say, look, we have got our own financial pressures. You know, we had a fair bargain as to how these risks were to be allocated. We're under pressure here. We want you to go to these dump sites because that's the way we're going to save money under this contract. We have the power to require you to do it, and we're going to do it. And again, I think pre-Bassine, we would have thought, yeah, of course, like that's almost a no-brainer, right? If the contractor wanted some guaranteed minimum profit, they either should have bargained for that or if it was refused, just not entered into the contract. But post Bespin, and I, you know, I don't know who the arbitrator of this case was, and I certainly don't want to come across as being unduly critical of the arbitrator, but I, I can sort of understand where they were coming from in a way. If you get back to something that was said in Bassin, which was that you cannot disregard the legitimate interests of your contracting partner, and I think that must have been the pitch, and I think for that arbitrator, at least it was the winning pitch. The owner in this case did act in a manner that had disregard for that contracting partner, Wastex, reasonable expectation that they would make a, a profit under this contract. And again, of course, who would enter into a contract without that expectation? It's, a, it's almost a given. However, in this case, the, the judges were not prepared to go that far to say that we're going to essentially require the owner to uphold that expectation even where it would be contrary to their own interests and even where the contract does not explicitly require them to do that and even where the contract in fact gives them discretion to require the contractor to protect their interests i think in this case on these facts by going to the the closest available websites for the garbage so i think in the result we can see that judges are not going to go that far and i think there, there's a tension even for all the judges, regardless of how they got to the decision. There's a tension, I think, that they don't want to be seen as going too far post-Bassine and engaging in rewriting of contract. There's still this very fundamentally important principle in our system that the parties have freedom of contract and to allocate the risks in the way that they seem fit. And there is a negotiation process and there's winners and losers in every negotiation. And so I think that's part of our system as well. But what we're going to see going forward then, I think, is are there going to be instances where that discretionary power exercised a contract is inconsistent with purposes of that contract? In other words, it's done for some ulterior motive or to injure the plaintiff for something that has kind of no rational connection to the contract. There, there is going to be a power, I think, in the court to say this is bad faith and we're not going to allow this. So those are my main takeaway thoughts on the Waste Tech case. But again, there's a lot to be said about this and, and happy to 
to, to discuss it further. Thanks, Brendan. So on a really practical note, of course, parties need to draft for this discretion. And what I mean by that is if the contract gives one party discretion, the other party needs to ask themselves, am I uncomfortable with any of the results that might flow from this discretion? And if I am, I need to draft to limit that discretion to prepare for all the options. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and that's, I, I think, one of the best takeaways actually from the waste tech decision is that these discretionary clauses are going to have to be negotiated and drafted very carefully and read in the context of the contract as a whole. Because that was the other thing that came out of the waste tech decision, I think, was that if you, you really had to read it as a whole document and in order to understand what the real purpose of this was. And I think just my own interpretation of it was that there was always an understanding that there were risks to both sides in this enterprise. There were risks that there were times where city, as I keep referring them to, I think in Vancouver, they're referred to as Metro, but in any event, they needed to be able to control their costs. And there were times where the contractor would obviously want to be able to make more money by going to the, the further dump sites. So, that that risk was precisely at issue, I think, in the negotiation and execution of that contract. And they ultimately agreed on a clause that basically gave the owner that discretion knowingly. And so there's winners and losers. So I think if, if as Catherine suggests, you see a real risk that you're going to be a loser to this discretion, the best advice we can give, frankly, because, again, remember all this wonderful litigation and arbitration is very expensive <laughs> to ultimately find whether or not a judge agrees with you is to spell it out in the contract document, to be mindful right at that stage, because that's that's where really these problems are going to be deal, dealt with most practically and most effectively issue by issue, is to really zero in on what the purpose of that discretion is relative to the overall purpose of the contract. So we've discussed how the application of the organizing principle of good faith and the duty of honest performance is very fact-specific. And I think one way to illustrate that might be to speculate on what fact changes might have resulted in different results in these two cases. And first on Callow, it's interesting to speak a little bit about the other aspect of that case, which was the ongoing renegotiation or negotiation for a renewal of the winter maintenance agreement. Not only was Callow performing the summer maintenance agreement in 2013, and intending to perform the second year of his contract of the winter maintenance agreement for 2013-2014, he was hoping for an additional two-year renewal. And as both the trial, court of appeal, and the Supreme Court investigated, they felt it was important to consider whether or not the dishonesty was connected to the contract being then performed or a contract being negotiated, a future contract. And the Court of Appeal wasn't so sure as the trial judge was that the dishonesty was connected to the current contract. And that was one of the reasons the Court of Appeal found that there was no breach of the duty of honest performance in this case. You know, imagine that this two-year winter maintenance agreement was actually just a one-year and it had concluded. And rather than exercising notice of termination, the Callow case was about an intended renewal of that agreement for the following year, where Callow believed he was going to get the renewal, and then ultimately at the last minute didn't. In that situation, there might have been the same dishonesty 
the same active deception or knowing misleading of Callow, but it might not have amounted to a breach of the duty of honest performance if it wasn't connected to contractual obligation, a right under the contract being exercised. Similarly, under the Wastec decision, I think it might have been a different result if the city wasn't exercising its discretion for its own benefit as contemplated under the contract. For example, if the city was only allocating the waste as a means to harm waste tech, not as a means to limit its own costs and be efficient in its own way, the court might have found that that would have been dishonest too, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Or even if it didn't necessarily amount to full dishonesty. And I I think that's a legitimate discussion, by the way. Does it have to be dishonest in order to be bad faith? I think not necessarily. And so, you know, it really, I I think you're absolutely right, Derek. It It would turn on, would there be evidence that the city had conducted itself in a way that it wasn't really exercising its discretion for its own benefit as permitted by the contract or or really for, you know, a rational reason in terms of its outcome. But again, as some sort of punishment or revenge or some other ulterior motive as against waste tech, I think the outcome probably would have been very different under the the scene and even the callow law that the Supreme Court of Canada had established. And yeah, it just shows you again, the, the, the exercise of fact finding in these, these cases is so very important. Are your witnesses going to come across credibly? Are they going to be believable? Frankly, that's the reason why oftentimes these cases do settle, because it, it is a risky proposition to put your witnesses on the stand, whether it's an arbitration or a trial, you don't always know how it's going to turn out. And I think that's, again, you know, to take it back to Callow for a second, that's why that decision is so interesting because again, had the witnesses for the defendant perform better, they may well have won because it, it is, it is an arguable case. Uh, these are all arguable cases, but I think we can safely say where the conduct amounts to dishonesty and that can be established as a matter of evidence. You've you've got a significant problem, but you may also have a problem if you cannot show that you've acted in a way that's consistent with the purposes of the contract, which again is a very loaded phrase. I think in future cases we'll we'll have to give some content to what that means. One question that's raised by the Callow case is: To what extent does the party committing the dishonesty have to actually contribute to the misapprehension? in the other contracting partner's mind. In Callow, we had two board members exchanging emails about their awareness of Callow's misapprehension. There was really not a lot of evidence to suggest that Baycrest actually contributed to the misapprehension. So I think the decision by the majority of the Supreme Court suggests that simply knowing about it and failing to correct it is potentially sufficient. What do you think about that, Brendan? I think it's potentially legal dynamite for construction projects, and and people are really going to have to, I think, handle this issue with with kid gloves. And I again, I don't want to resort to hyperbole, but I, that's it. It did strike me, you know, as being kind of potentially explosive, given the things I see in my career and that I've seen in my career can lead to expensive, protracted disputes and litigation. And so termination is obviously a hot button issue, and oftentimes. The relationships on construction contracts can start off on an adversarial footing, even just from the point of view of how these contracts are negotiated and set up. 
and sort of go from there, particularly as projects get more and more delayed. It's it's more and more part and parcel of human nature to, to have a fight over money. So the relationship gets frayed to the point where you've got a termination. And I'm sort of giving a rough analogy here to the facts of Callow. I know it's not perfect. I, I could see, as I said earlier, a situation arising where someone has made a decision to terminate a construction contract. Or maybe here's a better example to allow someone to continue to do certain work, they may think that they're going to get paid additional monies to the contract if they do the work, but you've already made the decision that you're you're not going to pay additional monies and you're going to take the position that you know this was within scope and they're not entitled to additional payment. What I'm trying to set up here is that you have made a decision, just like the people in the condominium corporation had made a decision with respect to Mr. Callow not to continue with his services, and you're not in a position to communicate that decision yet, or you've decided not to communicate that decision yet. This is where I can see the Callow case being very, very difficult to deal with as a practical matter for construction people, because what does that mean? Does that mean at a site meeting, you then have to tell them what you've decided? Do you have to put that on the record? I mean, arguably in certain circumstances, maybe yes. I think at a minimum, if you're asked a direct question, if you give an evasive or dishonest answer, you're going to have a problem. And so much of this is also dependent on what the documentary evidence say. I mean, Derek, you brought up the fact that some of the board members had emailed each other. And I I think the courts likely put a lot of stock in those emails, given what they ultimately found. So I think so much of this is going to boil down to this, is that the advice we've been giving for years, but maybe it's particularly acute in this context, is that the emails have to be, you have to be very careful with them. It's interesting, often in our cases, it's the emails where people have obviously been very sort of carefree and how they've drafted them are the ones that we have the most fun with as lawyers. But the email communication has to be handled very carefully. The discussions at meetings, formal or informal, with the person who's on the other side of that decision are going to have to be handled very carefully. And I think likely the court's bias is going to be this is that if for some reason you're not coming clean as to what it is you've decided, you better have a pretty darn good reason as to why not and be able to justify that. And to maybe even tie it into waste tech, you should be able to show that the way you're acting is consistent with the purposes of the of the contract and the purposes of the clause that invoking. So again, I uh, just to, to get back to what I said earlier, you know, there's been almost a thousand reported decisions citing Basin you know, since 2014, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of cases on these issues. And you're going to probably have similar callow and waste tech stats a few years down the road if we were able to do an update to this podcast then. Thanks, Brendan. We'll absolutely have to keep an eye on how the law continues to develop coming out of these two cases. And I don't think this is the last we've heard about good faith. Yeah, and just to circle back to something I said earlier, because I like to try to be practical in the things that I say where I can, I said to be careful about email communication. I think that's important. But, you know, the reality is it's often hard, I think, to be, you know, you have to, you're going to still have to email about these things, right? You can't have mental telepathy with your site personnel about whether or not you've decided to terminate a subcontractor. So, One practical bit of advice I might have is when these situations arise, when it gets to this sort of level of of tension where a serious callow-like decision is being made. In other words, we're we're not going to 
continue with this this contractor or subcontractor, we're, we're going to terminate them. One thing you can do, I think, is copy your legal counsel on emails that pertain to that decision, the reasons for it and what you're going to do, because that almost magically, I think, prevents those emails from becoming the subject matter of disclosure in the lawsuit if they're being exchanged for the purposes of obtaining legal advice, which is something that our court system uh, treats as fairly sacrosanct with limited exceptions. Those email communications can be privileged if legal advice is being sought. So I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to pump my own tires here and say, okay, well, you've got to immediately start copying someone like Brendan Bowles on emails. But what I am saying is if you are obtaining legal advice on the issue, copy the lawyer. If you have in-house counsel, when it rises to that level, they definitely should be part of those email communications. Because I, I have to think the result in Calo may well have been different without those emails that, that seem to have the flavor of, geez, it's awful nice to, to be getting this, these freebies from Mr. Callow. Do you think we should tell him that we're not going to hire him for the winter? No, obviously not. I think, you know, look, judges are human beings. I think they were clearly bothered by that. Some people may say that doesn't rise to the level of active deception, but this, this trial judge thought that it did, and ultimately she was upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada. That's very well put, Brendan, and thank you for sharing your thoughts on these cases, and also thank you to Derek as well. And thank you, Catherine. Appreciate you leading the discussion today. Thanks, Catherine and Brendan, and thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.